Oh, Saturday night and uh, moving in towards the uh, ending of the year, gathering the uh, energies to move into winter retreat uh, in a few weeks. A couple of the retreat crew uh, helpers are starting to arrive with a couple of new arrivals in the past day or two. Days are getting longer, or shorter, I'm sorry. Days are getting shorter, the night's getting longer. And um, yeah, just can feel the energy starting to move in that direction, tying up loose ends here. The uh, past bit of time, past several weeks or so, it seems like a lot of the discussions we've been having and some of the talks and reflections have been centered around the comprehensiveness of our path uh, the Buddha's path to freedom, and that it's not just a meditation technique uh, that we're practicing uh, for the full realization. So a balanced path of body, speech, and mind training that we're undertaking. So we've talked about that in, in many different ways, and and um, just reflecting that it, so much of the results that we experience are on a very uh, subterranean level, sometimes unconscious, the effects that all that we do uh, with practicing the path in its various ways, all that we do has this impact in the heart, the chitta, the mind, that uh, sometimes is working <clears throat> under the radar. <clears throat> So we don't see the effects moment to moment as it's happening, but only over a, a, a gradual period of time <clears throat> that this transformation is taking place. And that's, I think that's a, such an important thing to remember, at least it is for me, uh, because sometimes we get uh, kind of you know, self-critical or uh, a little bit despairing at, oh, the meditation practice isn't going so well, and. Uh, it's hard to develop concentration or there's a lot of activity or engagement or people or all those kinds of things that keep popping up in our minds sometimes when we're evaluating ourselves and, and our path of practice and how we're doing on it. But at times you can get this real strong hit that, well, yeah, there are changes being made. I'm not sure how or why or whatever, but there does seem to be this growing sense of ease and well-being that, that is coming more naturally. And I think it's just from that uh, gradual, uh, almost imperceptible change uh, in establishing kusala citta, uh, the wholesome heart, the wholesome mind. Very gradual process of little bit by bit abandoning the unwholesome tendencies and developing the, the, the skillful states of mind and, and qualities that gradually mold the chitta into something that's a little bit more bearable, a little bit more um, enjoyable to, to experience and to reflect with. And you can just, sometimes it just pops up at, uh, at, at, you know, at any time, uh, out of nowhere, just this sense of, oh, okay. There is more ease, there is more well-being, there is more uh, simplicity in my heart. 
And, and when that happens, to just take note and to realize, oh, okay, this is the fruits of practice. There are benefits, even if they're not shouting out at me, shouting out at the world. And this is the ongoing process. This is what forms this very strong and firm foundation, which eventually, if pursued, uh, will lead to the unshakable foundation that, that we're all seeking. So uh, yesterday at tea time, I was having a discussion with uh, three of the uh, folks here and uh, ended up talking quite a bit about precepts and vinaya and that part of the, the practice. And I just wanted to spend a few moments just emphasizing how important that is. We get very enwrapped with the whole uh, process of right mindfulness and right concentration and meditation practices and reflections, and which is, of course, essential, all good. Uh, oftentimes we don't have a lot of discussion around uh, the other aspects of the path, so I, I found that very refreshing, actually. And I think it's good to really reflect on and appreciate the absolute essentialness and, and, and importance of... Uh, the other parts of the path, particularly sila, um, right uh, speech, right livelihood, right right action, and and not to uh, underestimate uh, the importance of these, and how we can actually practice with them in in very subtle ways, uh, and that they have a very strong impact in the quality of our of our. Uh, Chitta and establishing kusala chitta and that sense of confidence. It's easy to get kind of lost sometimes uh, in the notion that they're just rules to follow, you know, and that, you know, particularly our form of Theravada Buddhism is just sort of this kind of, you know, cranked up about and, and uh, uh, compulsively following a bunch of nitpicky kind of rules. I've, I've heard other people from other traditions kind of talk about that as a quality of, of, of our practice. You know, it's, you know, you don't have to get so wound up in all the, these little niggly details. It's just kind of compulsion. But um, the more I've practiced with it, uh, the more I realize, uh, you know, I, I just don't, I don't buy that anymore. It's, you know, if, if, if one does get attached to it in that kind of way, uh, which practitioners can do, uh, particularly some monastics can get really uptight about the, the rules in a, in a very tight way. Um, you know, then that leads into sila bhata paramasa, attachment to rules and conventions. But um, at its heart and at its best, uh, when held uh, very clearly and with watching the effects in the mind, um, it brings up, practice with the, the precepts brings up a tremendous amount of uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension um, and uh, and ease and well-being that you can't get just from meditation. Um, so it's good to remember to not just look perfunctorily at the at the rules, particularly the you know the five precepts or the eight precepts as lay practitioners uh, and uh, without examining the, the more subtle nuances that one can, can use to, to really bring out that sense of 
uh, in you know acute mindfulness and, and clear comprehension as to how that it really can affect the mind if if taken to more subtle levels as well, and to not get complacent with uh, just some of the bare bones of of the of the sila, but to look more deeply. And you can use we can use the the example from uh, the monks and the nuns' rules of training to to help clarify some of the more subtleties, because the. 227 Padimoka rules and all of their derivatives, close to somewhere between, I think, two and 3,000 uh, rules that we would follow uh, at, you know, at their very subtle level, rules of training. Um, a lot of them, most of them, are some sort of derivative of, of the eight precepts or, or the 10 precepts when one gives up the use of money as well. As a, at the novice level, but they're all just uh, refinements of uh, the five and eight precepts in many ways. Uh, but those refinements, uh, whereas they're specific rules for monastics, are, are certainly worth looking at for the lay community too. And there's some lay practitioners who are very interested in the uh, the monastic vinaya and will study that uh, just to develop an understanding of how much deeper and how, how subtle uh, you can take some of these uh, training rules and to see the effect that it has. They're not only just for the monastics, uh, but for uh, the, uh, the whole community to, to understand. Of course, you know, many, most of the light practitioners won't take on the full kind of training set of monastic rules because some of them just don't apply uh, in the lay life. Uh, but there are a lot of them that, uh, when taken to heart, uh, are useful for anybody. So it's really worth delving into. Thinking about the precepts, uh, and the first precept of, about not taking the life of any living creature, um, you know, it's, it's fairly obvious on the, on the uh, surface of, of not killing any living sentient being. Um, and it's just uh, good to know that that's our basic rule of, of non-harming and that um, there's even more subtle ways that uh, we can be aware of that. Like in the monks' uh, rules of training, uh, there's injunctions against actually uh, pouring out a pitcher or a, you know, a, a vessel of water that's been uh, sitting outside, say, without checking first to see if there's any living creatures in it. So it's um, there's a, if one does that, then one's uh, broken one of the rules of training. So even at that level, it's a, it's a subtle training in mindfulness. Oh, there's a pitcher of water that's been standing out for a few days, uh, and I probably should empty it out. Uh, but before doing that, take a look. Is there anything living in there? And then if there is, you know, the rule for us is to make sure that we take any creatures that are in there and give them a safe uh, place to reside before we uh, empty it out, like taking them to a, a, a natural pool of water somewhere uh, before emptying out the vessel. Uh, other subtle rules about that are related not to killing, but in the same vein of non-harming, that it's a it's it's a, a violation of our our rules of training to strike uh, another human being or even an animal. Uh, out of anger, um, or even to raise one's hand uh, against someone, or even raising one's hand in a threatening gesture against an animal, unless it's 
uh, out of for, uh, you know self protection in some dangerous situation. But just the very gestures we make uh, of uh, are are under scrutiny uh, of ourselves uh, if we're trying to train ourselves towards non harming and fulfilling that first precept of of uh, non harmfulness. Not to mention the positive sides of of these. Uh, precepts uh, of developing the counterpart in a positive sense. So it, it bleeds into the uh, Dhamma practice of, of um, establishing a, a heart of kindness, uh, an intention of, of uh, loving kindness uh, for all beings. So taking the opportunity to find subtle ways that we can refrain from harming any living creature. The, the second precept of uh, not taking that which isn't given, not stealing anything, um, also uh, can be uh, practiced on, on very subtle ways, in very subtle ways, like, um, you know, uh, people have to pay taxes and, and um, fill out tax forms every year, and it's almost a common accepted practice to sometimes not mention things that legally one should mention. So you know, what, is, what is the subtle effect of that in the heart? You know, maybe it doesn't make a huge amount of consequence, and yes, everybody does it. But is there any kind of subtle effect that lingers there in the background uh, that uh, kind of can cause an obstruction in, in our process of purification of the heart? Subtle ways of shading, uh, shading and protecting our, our resources like that. Or say something like um, coming through immigration and, and border control and, and nothing to declare. Uh, well, that's the easy way. Nobody's going to probably figure that out or, or know unless you get caught in an uh, inspection somehow. Um, but uh, how easy it is to, to kind of shade past that because, again, it's easy to do and, and everybody does it. So. Um, there's very strict rules for the monks and nuns about uh, not engaging in that kind of uh, diversion uh, of, of goods through customs. So to use that as a, as a possible benchmark uh, for your own uh, travels uh, and see if that uh, kind of helps clear up any kind of uh, shady areas in, in our heart. Or even more you know, mundane uh, refinements like not even consciously really but almost unmindfully taking stuff from office like pens or pencils or pads of paper from the office to home because you need something there and, and there's plenty of it at the office. Little things like that without first asking uh, permission. Or visiting somebody else's home and uh, just not being so um, casual about uh, using different things uh, that are there, even borrowing a pen or something like that, just uh, always making it a conscious, mindful practice to just ask permission. Oh, um, I forgot to write down something. Can I borrow a pen rather than just going for it? Uh, subtle practices uh, for the monastics also, encouragement not to hoard kinds of things. Uh, it's easy to kind of get into a, a feeling of, oh, I've got 
you know, I'm, I'm going to be running out of these things someday, so maybe I should uh, make sure I've, I'm always going to have plenty of them and to accumulate lots of things that maybe you don't really need. So an encouragement towards simplicity and, and maybe not having to store up, you know, five years of toothpaste <laughs> just because it's cheaper at Costco that way. Um, so to, to encourage a, a, a bit of uh, simplicity and accumulation, not getting to accumulation and holding on to things, that's an encouragement in the monastic training that maybe people can bring into their own lives as well. And then just the opposite, the, the, the practice of generosity uh, to dovetail with our uh, restraint about uh, accumulation and uh, taking things uh, that we shouldn't take. Uh, what can we give? What's the opposite? How can we express uh, generosity and relinquishment of things that um, we can offer for other people's use? Uh, the, one of the Buddha's instructions to the monastics is uh, uh, to be willing to uh, share even uh, the smallest, even the smallest morsel of food uh, from one's own bowl um, to a, another monk. Uh, one should be that generous to to offer the contents of one's bowl to somebody who who might not have as much. That just creates a real sense of uh, trust and well-being, and and yeah, an easeful heart. And it counters that tendency to want to accumulate and hold things and um, get things that maybe we don't need or aren't rightfully ours. So subtle aspects of of the, just that precept of of not taking things not that they aren't given. Sexual misconduct, um, very clear in the teachings uh, to use sexual energy as lay people very, very wisely. It's a very strong, powerful uh, energy and can cause difficulty or harm uh, if, if not used with a lot of wisdom um, and care. Uh, so to be aware of that and to, um, you know, sometimes... Uh, if you if if you're inclined uh, to take on the monastic training of of complete celibacy, either for a, a short period of time or longer periods of time, um, to see the the cooling effects that that has uh, in the heart, um, uh, sexuality uh, can be can be an agitating kind of energy uh, that is, that uh, stirs up uh, stirs up the mind uh, and. Uh, if we really move into it, then it can take control uh, in some very compulsive ways. So to be uh, sensitive to that, and if we're looking for a peace of mind, to see if there's ways to, to tone down uh, the, the sexual energy, the sexual process. The precept, of course, is you know, for non-harmful forms of sexuality for the lay community. Um, and... Uh, it also just means, uh, it can mean taken to a further refinement level of, of just watching how even what seem like harmless uh, ways of being or interacting uh, can agitate uh, the mind. You know, flirtatious behavior, um, particularly if you're involved in a, a, a committed relationship, you know, um, 
avoiding the temptation to kind of subtly uh, engage with uh, somebody else uh, in a in a flirtatious way, even though you don't have any intention to establish any kind of sexual relationship. Just watching that tendency, um, and um, also uh, just. Um, being more restrained, using sense restraint in, in how you attend to uh, the visual world uh, of sensual images uh, and to be not um, attending in a way that creates uh, a lot of desire, a lot of uh, interest that you don't need to, to, to have if, you, if you're looking for a peaceful mind. So uh, being very restrained with uh, the senses uh, and being careful of how you attend to uh, the attractive signs and features of another person or uh, imagery of any kind uh, and to realize that, oh, I don't have to do that. Um, I can kind of let my mind be a little less agitated and a little more peaceful by uh, attending in a different way uh, or not attending to those uh, aspects uh, that, that incite uh, sensual desire. So that's not necessarily part of that third precept, but uh, it's a way to enhance it, and it's certainly uh, a part of the monastic precepts. So these can be useful to, to examine as a lay practitioner. Uh, the fourth precept on speech is, is very fertile ground for, <laughs> for, uh, for deeper examination, I think. Um, you know, there's the, the basic precept against lying, but then the, the other unwholesome courses of speech that one wants to avoid, uh, like uh, harsh or divisive speech, um, uh, you know, angry or talking about other people uh, in a dividing way, uh, or uh, insulting um, people. Uh, there's uh, uh, separate rules in the monastic training about uh, insults and uh, as well as misrepresenting the truth, but insults and harsh speech, uh, angry speech, complaining and criticizing. There's uh, rules uh, about how to work with that, and, and when we overstep the bounds, that, that's a, a violation of one of the precepts. Complaining, criticizing, uh, so more subtle levels of, of right speech. Evasive speech is another one uh, when being accused or admonished for something that, uh, that one might have done, just maybe not lying, but kind of avoiding evasively. Uh, there's, a, there's a really uh, classic uh, example given in one of the commentaries to the, to the Vinaya uh, that's uh, it's great about evasive speech. It's uh, one of the monks are admonishing uh, or quizzing, I guess, uh, interrogating another monk whom they suspect of uh, having committed a violation of one of the precepts. And you know, so they ask him, uh, have, you, have you committed this offense? And the monk answers, I've been in Pataliputta. And then the monks say, well, that's not answering the question. You know, we didn't ask you where you were. We asked you if you committed this offense. And the monk replies, from, from there, I went to Rajagaha and then on to, you know, somewhere else. And the monks say, 
we didn't ask you that question. We, whether you went to Rajagaha or Brahmanagaha, uh, it doesn't matter. Did you commit this offense? And the monk replies, I got some pork there. <laughs> so I always get a chuckle out of that one. It's a good example of evasive speech when, when being asked about something. Or just falling into silence is another way that uh, uh, people can violate precepts. So looking at those and uh, getting to know the Vinaya uh, that the monastics follow uh, can really point and illuminate uh, some of these more subtle qualities of, of the precepts and how they, uh, uh, by following the precepts well, uh, how they can really... Um, fine-tune uh, our hearts, fine-tune our minds, and bring about a, a huge amount of, of, of mindfulness and comp clear comprehension. So following these precepts and exploring them and maybe studying the Vinaya uh, is an integral part of uh, all of our practice. You know, the, as, as we've talked about, the Buddha taught the Dhamma Vinaya. He didn't just teach meditation. Uh, he taught a full range of practices of body, speech, and mind because it takes that, that uh, full, full approach to, to free the heart. It can't be done piecemeal. And to take, uh, to take notice of, of those effects that it has, it's, again, it's not, it's not a, uh, just a minor part of the practice or something you can let go of at some point. Uh, it's... It's uh, integral uh, to establishing uh, the peaceful, the peaceful mind, and continues to work even though we don't know it. Uh, you can go for years and years and years um, of following uh, the precepts and really attending to some of the more refined ways of doing it, uh, and the the change is slow, but it's very strong and it's very grounding and uh, it it just reaches you know towards that unshakability that we're all we're, we're looking for and uh, and it will last a long time and if we continue to, to follow and nurture it, uh, it, it, uh, it even if our meditation is falling apart or the circumstances where we're living aren't suitable or if it's uh, uh, difficult to manage all the different kinds of uh, energies and distractions that one can find in life, whether uh, in the robes or in the household life. Um, if one can stick with these precepts and really make that part of our daily, daily life uh, and not letting, not letting that slack in any way, then that firm establishing of the, of the heart in, in uh, easefulness and peace uh, has to result. It has to. It has to happen. So, I, you know, in answer to some of the questions, discussion we were having the other night, I'd just really like to encourage uh, people to, you know, to take that uh, into their uh, into their daily lives and, and to really make that a, a focus and a prominent part of of your your daily reality, uh, and that coupled with. Uh, generosity and giving um, and the whole that basis for relinquishment uh, in the process of generosity and giving um, 
in, in non-selfishness. Uh, uh, you don't have to be constantly contemplating uh, the, the, the Anattalakana Sutta, the, you know, the discourse on not-self, and trying to drum that in uh, in a contemplative way, although that's good too. Um, if you can practice uh, continuous generosity, that's a very firm foundation for relinquishment of the sense of self. Uh, even the, uh, you know, Buddha comes across some practitioners, uh, some monks practicing together, and asks them if they're practicing uh, together in harmony, and, and they are, uh, for various reasons. Uh, they have, they, they discuss that, or he, they respond that the reason that they are able to practice together well and in harmony is because they have uh, regular continuous thoughts of uh, loving kindness, uh, uh, thoughts and, and words, um, uh, and actions based on loving kindness towards each other. And, and then the one that always struck me uh, quite strongly uh, was that they said, you know, the, the response was, uh, when, I, when um, uh, I, we have the reflection of, uh, why don't I do what my friends would like to do rather than what I want to do? Uh, and that that's a basis for, for harmony. Why shouldn't I do what they want to do rather than what I want to do? And how hard that is. And I've made that a, a very strong intention uh, to try and and do that as much as I can. It's not easy going. You know, we are all interested in preserving our own agendas and our own needs. And to really, really practice that with that, uh, giving up what it is that we want to do uh, in deference to what others want to do um, is the basic foundation for self-effacement, for letting go of the, the sense of self. So those kinds of practices, uh, sila, dana, um, uh, are absolutely necessary and indispensable uh, uh, towards uh, developing the, the kusala citta, the, the skillful heart, um, that then leads to, to further release. So there are just a few reflections that coming up over the past few weeks and then also amplified uh, from the tea time the other night. So I'll leave it there for tonight's reflection. <laughs>